why things go wrong and what the Bible says about putting them right. So the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and how to keep from repeating the same mistakes. Tonight we're going to talk about making a right start, finding the root of your trouble. There's a lot of verses that people have questions about in the Bible, but there's a verse that no one doubts whatsoever. It's Job 5, 7. Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. And all God's people said, yeah, yeah, if I had a dollar for every time my mother said to one of her four Horban boys, you know, you don't have to go looking for trouble. When I was young, I thought you did. It just seemed like that's what you do. You go looking for trouble. And then as you get older, you just you learn that you just have to sit around and wait for it, and it will come around to you uh, eventually. And so I was thinking about the time that I've spent over 33 years here talking to people in my office about their problems and their troubles. And I don't think it would be unfair nor unkind to say that there are people who come in with just a good grasp of life and stuff happens. That happens uh, frequently. But there are other times when people come in and you spend a good chunk of the conversation not solving the problem, but first of all helping to see what the problem really is and where it came from. Let me give you an example. I had a letter recently from a, a dear uh, Christian woman in this church, and she wrote me a letter, and she talked about an issue, and uh, I read the letter because it was signed. You know my policy. If it's an unsigned letter, I don't read it. So if you're going to go to all the work of writing a long letter, for goodness sake, put your name on the bottom, because if it's not signed, you might think you expressed your opinion, but I never looked at it. I just go right to the bottom of whatever comes to me and see if there's a signature on it. This was signed. She talked about an issue that was coming up in the church, and she said, you know, this, this issue has the potential to be very divisive. Those were her words. And I thought, that's a classic example of stating a problem and not quite realizing where the source of the trouble lies. See, issues aren't what divide churches. Does everybody understand this? Issues aren't what divide churches. What divides churches are people's responses to issues. There's a subtle difference in that. One puts it out there. There's a situation. There's an issue. And that's what's going to be the problem. Well, no. If everybody makes up their mind that they're not going to allow this to be divisive, and everybody says, you know what, I'm just going to respond to this, whatever my personal feelings are, with patience and Christlikeness, then there would never be anywhere in the country a church split. Whenever those things happen in a church, people will go away thinking, you know that issue, that worship issue, that teaching issue, that, that was the issue that split. No, it wasn't. Every church split in the world is caused by the same thing. It's called carnality. <laughs> it's, a, it's a response 
I just use that as an illustration of someone who thinks, here's the problem. And you spend quite a bit of time saying, no, no, see, this isn't the problem. The problem is here. That, that's the problem. Because if you don't look in the right place, you're never going to solve it. My dad used to tell the story of a, he just made it up, but it was the story of a, an, a poor, destitute, drunk on the streets of Toronto who only had one loony and he lost it. And it was wintertime and it was night and people walked by and felt sorry for this, this poor soul and his lost loony. And it wasn't long before 20, 30 people were all trying to help him find He was bent on finding that loony. Looking and looking and looking. Finally, a friend says, look, this ought not to be that difficult to find, especially right under this street lamp. It should show up. And the old drunk said, no, I didn't lose it here. (laughs) I lost it across the street. And the guy said, well, why are you looking here? And he said, well, the light's so much better. (laughs) Think about it. If you're not looking in the right place, you can't fix things. So this will be a series that will run, oh, maybe 15 weeks or so. And we'll look at all sorts of issues, piles of them. But that's not where we're starting I want to start tonight with making a right start, finding the root of the trouble, because we're going to study problems, quite a few Sunday nights in our teaching sessions, and and the Christian faith is big enough, strong enough, real enough, practical enough to, to cope with life as it really is served up, life the way it comes out of the box. One could argue that the Christian faith is actually the only Thing that offers solutions to our biggest problems. Uh, the two biggest problems we all have are exactly the same. We are sinners and we are mortal. Ultimately, those are the only two things that matter. And Christianity is the only thing that gives solution to those two problems. Only Jesus can deal with the problem of sin. Not any other religion, not any other prophet can deal with the problem of sin except to tell you to try better. There's Muhammad. Be better. Do better. Only Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The problem of sin and the problem of death, only Jesus can deal with them. But we all know there's a host of other problems as well. They aren't as big, perhaps, as the problems of sin and death, but they're real. They can hurt. They can confuse. And so we want to know how to make our faith livable, workable, not only for our own sakes, but for helping others and for displaying the power of the gospel to this watching world. And so tonight we're going to start, we're going to look at the source of trouble or the sources of trouble in this present world, like looking for that loony. You can't find it if you aren't looking for it in the right place. Let's get right into it. There are, I think, four 
and only four. That's a fairly bold statement, and I'm hoping I can show you that. I think there are only four sources of trouble this side of heaven. Four sources of trouble this side of heaven. Each of your problems, each of mine, will come under one of these four headings, and here they are. There are problems, troubles, I'm using those words interchangeably, problems coming as a direct result of sin and a fallen world. And that covers a lot. There are problems coming as a result of outside influences. I'll explain that. Problems coming as a result of personal choices. And fourth, there are problems or troubles, apparent troubles at least, that come as a result of God's maturing, purifying love. And it's my desire to go through those four things quite, quite uh, quickly tonight. First, until Jesus comes again and takes us all home to heaven, we all live in a world with the results of the fall and sin. Let me read to you seven verses of Scripture that you cannot live well on earth without. No one can live well on earth without knowing these seven verses of Scripture. They come from Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Already, she's mixing it up. God never said anything about touching it. He just said not eating it. But she didn't get the instructions right. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband. Isn't it interesting that Adam is called her husband? gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. When the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. By any count, young earth, old earth, and somewhere in between, by any count, this happened quite a while ago. And yet we all live each day of our lives affected by those events. In spite of what a lot of people might tell you, we are affected by the fall no matter how godly you become, no matter how much faith you possess. There is a branch of word faith uh, called word faith theology, dominion theology. There's a group of theology that that, that, that teaches that we actually get in this life with enough faith and enough trust in God and enough of the anointing of the Spirit, there are churches in Newmarket that teach this, that we actually get to undo all of the effects of the fall right here in this world, including death. 
If you just have enough faith and enough confidence, and there's just not a shred of that anywhere in the Bible. Not a shred of that anywhere in the Bible. Before the fall, mankind lived in a perfect environment. Uh, They had responsibilities, but they did not have problems. Adam and Eve, along with the rest of creation, were working in harmony with the will of God. And then both Eve and Adam disobeyed God and they brought an end to that paradise. Now, that disobedience affected things in two important ways. First, from that moment on, from what we call the fall... Uh, the entrance of original sin into the world, into our natures. From that moment on, mankind lives in a sin-damaged world, and that is you and that is I do too. To the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, 16 through 19. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, you've listened to the voice of your wife. You've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. To dust you shall return. If you want to go to the New Testament and see the ongoing effects of sin and the fall, you can look at Romans 8, 19, 20, 21, and 22. Paul writes and says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is described as It's beautiful, it's lovely. Romans 1, it it shows the majesty of God. Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. Sure, there's a lot of beauty and majesty there. But the creation is described as being in a state of groaning. Everything you see, groaning. There's, There's something in the created order that right from that moment of sin on till now is bent Twisted, warped. This this world is not the way God initially made it. I am constantly amazed when you hear intelligent, well-read critics of Christianity. You'll see them on talk shows. You'll see them on TV. You'll read them in articles and editorials who look at the world the way it is and make their judgment about the goodness of God by looking at what the world is like. How could a loving God have made a world where babies die and hurricanes come and tsunamis come and wash away innocent poor people? How how can you Christians talk about a good God? And of course, they're making one terrible fundamental mistake. They're assuming an unbroken chain from the way God made the world to the way it is now. Like God created, and there was no other significant event. It's just been unfolding ever since. And of course, what the Bible says is there's, there's a huge, 
huge difference between the way God made the world and the way you see it now. You take the fall out of the picture and you can't make sense of the scriptures. A lot of our problems come from right here. Christians need to understand this clearly. We will, no doubt, no doubt, I'm not questioning for a second that we'll see many wonderful answers to prayer. God does so many gracious things for his children in this fallen world, but make no mistake about it, the full undoing of the effects of the fall will not take place in this age, not until Jesus comes again and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Until then, everyone lives in a fallen world. It affects everything. It affects everything. So there's two ways, I say, we're affected by the fall. This world in which we live is a fallen world. But that's only one factor. The second factor is human nature is influenced by the fall as well. In other words, not only, the Bible's quite clear, not only is our environment affected by the fall, I am, you are. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We, we, we have that in us. Hymn writer caught it beautifully. We, we, we sing, once in a while we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds. This isn't the bad stuff you do. This is the good stuff you do, okay? All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. More familiar words, Romans three twenty three: all have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we, we deceive ourselves. He's writing to the church, by the way. He's writing to Christians. True, we don't all yield to sin as much as we once did. True, there's provision for growth and holiness and grace to abide in Jesus. Power to resist the devil. But the point is... The devil is still here, and he has something to work with in me and in you. We all have to walk in the Spirit, Paul says, not yield, not give in to the flesh. We, I take that to mean we have this inclination. You have it, I have it. This inclination to sin that, that has to be overcome. That, that's, well, that's what the fall has done to us. That's what it did to you. That's what it's done to me. And so we all create much of our own misery in life by giving in to the inward impulses of our sinful nature. Cruelty, selfishness, impatience, anger, lust, greed, unforgiveness. All those things bring misery and regret to our souls. So there's one, one source of trouble that's come right from the fall 
Until Jesus comes again and takes us to heaven, we all live with the results of the fall in this world. Second, another source of our problems. Every one of us faces problems that come from outside causes that lie totally beyond our ability to predict and control. It's related, but I think it needs to be added to that first source of trouble, the fall of mankind. While it's true that all troubles can be traced to the entrance of sin and the fall, not all the problems I face are the result of my own sin. I am constantly affected by what I'm going to call outside sin in two ways. A, I live in a world infected by sickness, grief, and natural disaster. These are caused by sin, the first point. They're usually totally out of my control. By that I mean these things happen to godly people and ungodly people alike. True, sometimes God intervenes, but it's equally true that sometimes he doesn't. Well, look later tonight at reasons why he doesn't always intervene. The important point here is that these events will affect all of us on planet Earth. Jesus actually said that we could expect an increase in these kinds of problems with the passing of time as his second coming drew near. That's in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8. Jesus answered them, his disciples, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. That's war. Kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines. Okay, That's, that's uh, economically driven. Things in nature, produce, food. Starvation, hunger, earthquakes, so natural disasters. Earthquakes are an example. Tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, drought, floods. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. You can't control that. We can't control that. Those things, those things happen. They happen because of sin, but they aren't just the result of some sinful thing that one person has done that lie outside the realm of our personal responsibility. But here's another source of trouble. My life is affected by the actions of other people. And that, too, is something I can't do all that much about. I get transferred to a poorer job, and I have a tough time financially. Someone drives through a stop sign and hits my car, injuring a loved one. Foreign power declares war. These are just all examples of troubles that come from the actions of others. They're traceable to the fall, but I have no control over any of these things. They aren't something that result from just my own sinful choices. They're things that happen from the presence of sin in others. And and here's the important point. These kinds of circumstances, in spite of what you may sometimes hear, they are a very poor way to measure your spirituality. You will not please God by just beating yourself up for somehow not being a person of faith and victory. 
because of things you can't control and things you can't cause and things you can't stop. But you have to be careful. You have to be careful when you try and analyze your troubles as to whether they are things that are your fault or things beyond your control. I give you... you have these in your notes, those five situations? One, two, three, four, five. I got five. How do you have seven? Wow, you guys... You got even more. Which of these are examples of things you can't control? A loved one dies in a plane crash. I can't do anything about that, right? You plant your crops late. And they don't have enough time to grow. No, that's your fault. See? You'd be amazed how many people, when they look at spiritual situations, get as mixed up as that. You leave your wallet on the counter at the store and it gets stolen. Well, that's your fault. Someone else was wrong in taking it, but it's also your fault for leaving it. You lose your job because of serious illness. That's not your fault. Your boss fires you because you always arrive late for work. Well, that one's your fault. (laughs) Those are the kind of things, those are the kind of things that you need to think through properly. Third source of trouble. Many of our problems are the result of our own personal choices. You need to look at this carefully. Now we're getting close to home. Less cosmic and more inward and personal now. There's no denying that life simply forces us to make decisions. And because we don't know everything, we're finite, we're limited, we often have to make choices with less than perfect information. We just do the best we can. Those choices sometimes turn out to be well-intentioned, but mistaken. We made a wrong choice. We didn't mean to, but we did. But there's other choices. Because we are also fallen, and I already looked at how that affects us in our own natures, we also make choices that we know full well are attractive, but unacceptable and wicked. In fact, if you want to simplify it, you can lump all of your choices into two categories. Here's how I'm going to sum it up. Sometimes we make good choices and things turn out well. We make good choices and things turn out well. Good choices are enhanced, of course, by increased uh, biblical input, godly wisdom, patience, understanding. Thinking of Romans 12, 1 and 2. In good choices, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So sometimes we make good choices and things turn out well. Other contributing factors will be uh, discipline, the ability, to, the ability to put a rein on your own inward desires. 
Another factor that will help in good decisions is patience. That's giving care and attention whenever possible rather than just acting on impulse. The first thing that comes to your head. Another thing about good choices, sometimes you make a good choice and it makes life harder. So what are you talking about, Pastor Don? There's all sorts of times where you can make a good biblical choice that will cause temporary loss of comfort and pleasure and ease. You can make good godly choices, and I'll tell you right now, they're not going to be popular with all your friends, not all the time, maybe not even immediate family members. Sometimes good choices in a biblical sense can call for extreme dedication. Sometimes they call for self-denial. Lots of times it's easier to, you know, bail out of a hard marriage than to stay with it, but it's still a good choice to stay with it. It's always easier to give in to temptation than to resist temptation, but it's always a good choice to resist temptation. So, so... Sometimes good choices aren't necessarily easy choices. But if you look long term and you're thinking in terms of renewed mind and the wisdom of God and patience and discipline and self-denial, you can increase the odds of making good choices with all those things. But that doesn't mean all those good choices are going to be immediately comforting and joyful. Sometimes they aren't. They will ultimately be the best choice, evidently. But you won't always sense that the moment you're making them. It's dangerous to measure the quality of a decision. If I could take everyone under 30 and say, it is dangerous to measure the quality of any decision simply by the immediate pleasure that it brings. Don't measure it like that. Years ago, I'm dating myself, but years ago, years ago, I can remember when Debbie Boone, anybody, you relics that can remember when she came out with that song, You Light Up My Life? Oh, goodness me. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. And every Christian in the world should have stood up and said, Are you kidding me? Don't be ridiculous. Of course it can. Almost every wrong choice feels right initially. Use your head. And Christians were just singing it all over the place. B, sometimes we make poor choices... And create our own problems in the process. So I've talked now about making good choices. Now I'm looking about making poor choices. Proverbs 13, 15. Good sense wins favor. But the way, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Poor choices, sinful choices, always make life more difficult Ultimately. Well, then, why do people make poor choices? Why do people make sinful choices? Well, because they only look short-term. They only look at the short-term results of their decision. And sin always comes with a a short-term payoff for long-term misery. Always. 
It's why the Bible always warns of, you'll notice, the deceitfulness of wealth and lust and pride and the like. You, you never really see what you're going to end up with in the early stages of making those sinful choices. Poor decisions are always made either without the input God's Word can give or they're made against the leading of the Holy Spirit and conscience. Four. Sometimes what we perceive as a problem is the outworking of God's purifying love. We've all heard the question, haven't we? Why would a loving God allow his people to suffer? Well, I don't think anybody likes it. But I think there are valid scriptural answers to that question, and, and we all need to have a handle on them. A, God allows us to go through trials and problems to both purify and to exercise our faith. I think we need to understand, the Bible says God does not tempt us, that's James 1.13, but he does purify us, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, where he says, in this you rejoice, talking about the hope of the second coming of Jesus, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God uses trials to prove, to exercise my faith like a muscle, to wean it away from earthly attachments, to, to alert me to get ready for my true home and my true reward. You know, I stand up here like I did tonight and I'll say, you know what, these are really good books. Get these books and read them and think about them. And I stand by that. Your faith can be informed by reading. But your faith can only be exercised by trials. Everybody get the difference? Your faith can be informed by reading. But that's not exercising your faith. You'll have a better faith if you do a lot of reading. I'm convinced of it. But that's just informing your faith. It'll stand you in good stead. But God doesn't want to just inform your faith. He wants to exercise it. He, he causes us, he causes us like uh, my neighbor tells me, the neighbor who used to live beside me, he moved away and he worked for uh, one of the departments of parks and recreation and all of that. And he would see me on a hot day and I'd be out there, this is years ago, and I'd be out watering my grass. And I'd just put the sprinkler on for a little while and I thought that would do it good. And then I'd turn it off because I didn't want to waste water. And then I'd put it on the next day for, you know, another 15 minutes, and then I'd turn it off. And he came out to me one day, and he goes, you know, you're not helping your lawn. And I said, what are you talking about? And he says, well, ideally what happens 
even when it looks like the top is getting kind of brown, if you don't just water it like that in little spurts, what it does is it makes the roots on your grass go deeper into the soil looking for nourishment. That's what God does. That's what God does. He brings brings situations that we wouldn't choose on our own. And I'm not saying every bad thing that happens to you is, is God. That's not my point. I'm saying there are times when God brings things into our lives and and he, he forces us to lean on him in ways that we wouldn't normally. I am convinced. Prosperity teaches the church nothing. Trials teach the church everything. Now, if I'm given a choice, I'll take prosperity. How many would take prosperity over trial? Okay, it's carried. That's the way we're going to do it. So God uses these things to test and exercise and deepen our faith. There's one other thing. Point B. God uses our problems and troubles to enable us to minister to others who are going through the same thing. If these kinds of things never came to any of us, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God does care about you deeply. He loves you with an everlasting love. But just because he cares about you deeply doesn't mean he just cares about you. And he wants to use uh, the things you go through and the things you experience and the things you learn and the assurance of his presence and grace in the middle of the muddle of your life. You go through seasons like that and Paul says there's, there's a reason why God doesn't just come and, and do you know, the genie thing and make all your troubles disappear. And that's because you're going to bump into somebody out there getting your coat, maybe tonight. And they're going to come up to you and they're going to say, oh, you can't believe what's happening to me right now. And they're going to start. And you're going to say, you know what, in fact, I, I actually I can believe what you're going through because that's... that's Either that's where I am right now or that I've been there. Let me tell you what Jesus can do if you'll just hang in there and trust him. Let me tell you not to make a rash decision right now. Let me tell you to lean on his promise and his word. What I'm saying is that God does love you and he's not out to make your life miserable in any way, shape, or form. Everything God does is something that will produce ultimate joy even when we don't recognize it initially. But God isn't out to just comfort you. He's out to use you to comfort others. And, and in the same way, in the same way, to a lesser degree, of course, in the same way that we have a sympathetic high priest, Jesus, because he's been here 
and been where we are and gone through what we go through. That's why we have a sympathetic high priest instead of just an angry condemning one every time we fail. Because if, if Jesus were merely perfect in the sense that he never even knew what it was like to be tempted or tried, he would have no patience with me. So in the same sense that that's how God reached down into my life, now the things that go into my life that are difficult and trying, God uses them to reach into yours. There's a pattern there. So, we've studied four sources of problems. Because it's important to know where you're at if you are to respond with scriptural action. So, you know, when you're going through something, I would just encourage you to take those four categories. Look at what you're facing. Look what you're going through and say, is this something that... Is this something that's the result of my own choosing? Is this something that's just the result of living in a fallen world? Is this something I've contributed to? Is this something God is using in my life to make me a help and a blessing? To Sort those things through so that you can pray about them in, in, a, in a biblical framework instead of just whining. When you do, you'll have taken the first step, a huge step, and figuring out, how, how, how did we get here? And listen, you know what? The beautiful thing, we'll look more next Sunday night. The beautiful thing is, one of those categories were choices that we make. We make in impatience, or we make looking just short-term, or giving in to fallen desires, and not taking those things into account. And you look back and you say, you know what? Pastor Don's right. I, I did. I brought this on myself. Please don't confuse what I'm saying. It is the only reason for knowing that, and you need to know that, is so that you can, when you go to the Lord, you can confess that as a sinful choice and deal with it properly. But please don't think I'm saying, just because it was the result of your own doing, that God can't come into it with grace. Everybody understands that, eh? When I say, learn to see which problems are your own fault, it's so that you can confess those things as sin and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy that every time we have communion and I think about all the things that I've brought on myself in 60 years of living, that the blood of Jesus still comes and cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And all of us get more mercy than we ever deserve. Always remember he's a good, faithful God. And keep that as the backdrop for all these Sunday nights. We're going to look at all sorts of different specific situations that Christians face and how to deal with them from a biblical framework.